0: Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. Praise God. Well, Rich mentioned this morning, just in opening, that we're starting a new teaching series today on the letters of John, which we're really excited about. Um, We're starting it today. We're going to be running it concurrently along with another teaching series about why do we do that, looking at some of the aspects of our practices and teachings uh, alongside that. So today I want to start with an introduction Um, And what I'm going to do is just split our time into two parts. I'd like just to start with uh, an introduction to the background of John's letters. Then we're going to take a quick five-minute leg stretch for you just to stretch your limbs, limber up a little bit, and then we're going to come back, and then we're going to talk about three of the key themes of John's letters that I'd like to pick out for us this morning, just to introduce them. I believe that we'll unpack them for you uh, in the coming months. So I want to start with the background and the usual questions whenever we come to um, study a book, which is when, when was it written, whom was it written to, why was it written, what was written, what's in it, what's contained in it, and who wrote it? And I want to deal with them in that order this morning, just to start with when. Uh, It was written around AD 85 to 95, so quite late on. Um, We can't be precise about the date of it, um, but we know that John wrote it after he had written his gospel uh, and probably before he wrote um, the book of Revelation. He wrote it to the Christians in Asia Minor. Now, we get this term in the Bible, Asia Minor, that doesn't really make much sense today. Asia Minor was a term that the Romans coined because the continent of Asia, the first colony that they had, was in this southwest corner, which is now what we would call modern-day Turkey. And so when they colonized that and made it part of the Roman Empire, they called it Asia Minor. Um, And that's where John wrote these letters to, the Christians and the churches that were in this area. And that included principally Ephesus, which was a really important part of this province. And obviously, we'll be very familiar with Ephesus and, and the book of Ephesians. John lived in Ephesus for a number of years as well. So he had personal relationships with a lot of people Uh, that he was writing to in this area, and that is evident when you read the letters. They're really affectionate letters, um, and that's really a lovely thing to read. Why did he write them? Well, everything really centers around the historical context for a lot of the correspondence that we've got in the New Testament. We have to remember that we are holding Scripture in our hands, but we're also holding someone's personal correspondence. This is something that someone sat down to write because there was a need to write it, and there was someone that needed to hear it. And in this particular case, um, there was prevalent at the time something called Gnosticism, which is a really broad collection of beliefs that essentially centered around the notion that everything that was spiritual was good, and everything that was physical and natural, like the body, was essentially evil, or essentially couldn't be good. So there had to be a separation between that which was spiritual and that which was physical and that broadly was the the umbrella for Gnosticism but it came in lots of different forms it had been around for several centuries by the time that John is writing it was prevalent amongst the Greeks and the Greek empire and when it came into contact with Christianity when it came into contact with the gospel that the people of God had taken out around the Roman empire it started to create something another heresy which was called docetism docetism and docetism it simply comes from the Greek word which is dokin or dokein, and it means to seem that's what that word means to seem and it was the notion that for the Gnostics that if Christ had come and taken the form of a man then that which is spiritual and that which is physical would come together and you couldn't have that happen so it was an anathema to a Gnostic that Christ could have come and physically became a man So this uh, view started to take form um, around the time that Jesus came, for sure, but he didn't really turn into a man. He just appeared to look like one. So he walked like a man and he taught like a man, but he wasn't really a man. And that kept the Gnostics happy, and that was a a heresy that John had in mind when he's writing this letter. And there'll there'll be times when you read through the letters, which I'm hoping you're going to do over the coming months, many times, when you will find that John refers to Jesus coming in the flesh yes, right. and talking about those who had been teaching in the church that Jesus had not really come in the flesh, but actually he seemed to come in the flesh because they were being influenced. And to be honest with you, this was not to be unexpected. Way, way back when Paul was in Ephesus and he left Ephesus, he said, look, as soon as I leave, I know that there are false teachers that are, that are travelling around. And they will come in and they will try to corrupt. And there will be those amongst you that will be misled and will try to mislead others. So John is writing these letters to steady the flock and to say, look, I want to bring you back to first principles. I want to help you because there are people that are spreading false teaching. The problem with docetism was several fold. First of all, if Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, then how could Jesus be an example for us? How can he ask you to live a life that he didn't really live as a human? Secondly, Jesus couldn't be our high priest because the high priest is the representative that comes between man and God, the one that takes the sins of the people. Thirdly, he couldn't really in any sense be our saviour, could he? Because if it was just God masquerading as a man. But for us, it also means that if this belief was correct that Jesus didn't really come as a man, then our bodies have not really been redeemed. And the scripture teaches us that our bodies are redeemed as well as our souls. And our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So you see, it was really important for the apostles that they dealt with things like this that were coming in to undermine the truth. And always at the root of all of them was attacking Jesus and who he is. And really, all things that are dangerous in teaching, at their heart, that is what's wrong with them, is that they're undermining who Jesus is, who his place is in our lives, and who we are because of who he is. So John had to deal with these things. And um, when you look through the letters of John, uh, whenever we study a a book in the Bible, we try to sort of create a... if you like, a little framework just to summarise everything that's in the book. It's a nightmare trying to do this with the book of John. (laughs) Uh, When we did Romans, I found it really easy. But when you go through 1 John, John just doesn't really like to fit into any set format. Um, But anyway, some writers have had a go. Here's one, if you can put up. There you go. So this is a writer called J. Sidlow Baxter. And um, he looks at the book as as, uh, primarily 1 John, um, looking at it as... A book of contrast, so contrasting the light with the darkness, that's God's light with the darkness, God the Father with the world, Christ with the Antichrist, or, or the spirit of Antichrist, that is anything that sets itself up against Christ. And then God, godly works or God works versus evil works, the Holy Spirit versus error, or should I say the truth, the Holy Spirit's truth versus the error of false teaching God's love versus just a pious pretense of being so, and then the God-born versus the others. Now, I looked at that, and I thought, it's okay, but it wasn't really that helpful to me. Um, he picks out some good things, though. So some of the key themes that Jay Sidlow Baxter picks out is that John wanted us to know. He wanted the people that read this letter is how to know, and knowing is really important for the believer. And he wanted them to be able to abide in what they've been taught. And that's really important for us as well. The foundational teachings of what we believe, we need to abide in those things. And we need to know them in our heart of hearts so that we're not swayed and tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine, as Paul warns us elsewhere in the Scriptures. And one of these key phrases is this, hereby we know. So John uses it in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. Hereby we know. And John's heart was to shore up the Christians so that they wouldn't be swayed. If you can just move on to the next slide. This is a simpler way of looking at John, which I like. This is one of my favorite writers called G. Campbell Morgan. He was an evangelist of the early 20th century. If you can get any books by G. Campbell Morgan, I really recommend it. He was a scholar, but he wrote with a real heart and passion. And he really pulls you in. He's not dry, he's full of life. And he said that John's gospel, which in lots of ways, especially in its beginnings, mirrors how John's letters start. Obviously, they share the same author. Was written to show men, to show mankind that they had life. That life had come amongst them. And that the divine life was revealed in Jesus, the Son of God. And his letters are written to believers so that believers may know that we have life. And that that life that has come is realized, it's manifest, it's evident in our lives because we've become sons of God. And I think that's, a for me, that's a really great summary of why John wrote these letters. The second and third letters take a slightly different format to the first one because they are shorter, they follow what's known as the classical style of letter writing of the time. That's in the Roman Greek world. And they're quite short because John wrote to two people that he wanted to encourage in churches in the region whom he had a personal relationship with. And John said, look, I'm going to write these few things to you, but look, I'd like to come and talk to you about these things face to face. I don't know whether John made it to that meeting. I don't know whether John had to, you know, made the time or was able to sit face to face with those people. We get a little snippet of what he wanted to say. In the second one, he writes to Someone called the Elect Lady, quite a nice title, isn't it? And her children, the Elect Lady, about practicing and protecting the truth, about the importance of that. And the third letter, he then writes to his beloved Gaius, another close personal friend uh, that John commends for his hospitality. And at the same time, he takes to task someone else called Diatrephes, who was someone who was not welcoming God's people into their community and actually was just promoting himself he wanted to run things and he didn't want anyone else to come in and spoil that for him and John says he takes him to task and then he says and when I come I'm going to deal with Diatriphes. I'd love to have seen that John the apostle turns up I would not like to be in diatrophies shoes at that point so the last thing I want to talk about is who wrote it and the reason why this one is last because the person who wrote it really matters. Because we are looking at someone who is very special amongst God's people, amongst the apostles, and in some ways quite unique. John the Apostle was Jesus' first cousin. So that was on his mother's side. His mother was Salome, who was Mary's sister. His father was Zebedee. He was the brother of another apostle, James. James and John were sons of Zebedee. And one of the things I love about them is they were nicknamed sons of thunder by Jesus. Would you love to have that nickname by Jesus? Son or daughter of thunder? Boom. Who's turned up? It's the son of thunder. Here he comes. I think maybe it put a little bit of pressure on you in the meetings. That's all I will say. I love that. Maybe this was because this was, uh, they had a fire about them, both of them. There was one occasion where they asked Jesus. They were refused entry into a Samaritan village. And one of them says to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So, so John was a man full of passion and fire and a son of thunder. Great guy. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. So of the apostles, we know that Jesus had three that were really close to him, like close friends, and that was Peter and James and John, the sons of thunder. And they were present at some things that the others weren't. So when Jesus raised Jairus's daughter, the three of them were there to witness it. When Jesus was transfigured, the three of them were to see it. Um, and in those moments in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John were there to witness it. So this is a man who has witnessed really the most significant things in the whole of history from our perspective and from God's. And here's the one that really takes the biscuit. He's described as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's description, by the way. Uh, he describes himself. Um, it's like when you, one of your children announces that they're the favorite. I mean... It happens in every family. We've got one. She thinks she's the favorite. And we say, no, you're not. And the other say, yes, she is. I kind of feel that maybe this was John, but meant in a really good way. But one thing that speaks volumes is at the Last Supper, John himself said that he was leaning against Jesus. Can you imagine that? The liberty to lean, not to kneel at his feet, but to lean upon his breast. He wasn't taking a liberty. He had a close relationship with Jesus. He was his friend as well as his saviour. He loved him. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, but John loved the Lord. And that is evidence when Jesus was dying on the cross and in the midst of all the weight of the world that was upon him, in that moment, he took the time to remember his mother, Joseph, his father, had probably died. I don't know where his siblings were. But Jesus looked at his mother and didn't want her to be on her own. And so he said to John, look after my mother. Now speaking as a son, if I were dying and there was no one to look after my mum, who would I turn to? Who would you turn to to look after your mother? Well, for Jesus, it was this man now, that speaks volumes about the man, doesn't it? And about his heart, about how Jesus felt about him. Another thing is that on the, on the, the first Easter Sunday, when the disciples went to the tomb, um, Peter ran to the tomb, but John set off after him but outran him to the tomb. Again, this is John's account, I should just stress that. Um, so he was fitter than Peter, that's for sure. And there was a rumor amongst the disciples that he wouldn't die. And John speaks about that again. This is John's account. I'm not undermining the gospel account, by the way. I'm just having a bit of fun. Um, He was rumored that he wouldn't die just because Jesus, when someone asked him, will will any of us be alive when you come back? And he said, well, if that guy's alive when you come back, that's not for you to know. And they took that to mean, John's not going to die. John's never going to die. And it seems like he almost made it because he was the oldest of the apostles as far as we know. He lived to be a really old man. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. Maybe. He was the second most prolific author of the New Testament, writing five books in total, his gospel, the three letters that we're looking at, and the glorious book of Revelation. So John's contribution to the New Testament was absolutely magnificent and cannot be underestimated. We talk a lot about Paul because of the volume of what he wrote, but John's contribution was huge. And you have to consider what the New Testament would be if John hadn't put pen to paper. So we are really glad that the Holy Spirit moved this brother of ours to put pen to paper and to commit things that we can be blessed with today. And the thing that strikes me most about this, I've been reading through this for the last couple of months, and a couple of weeks ago, Ellie said to me, we've both been reading it, and she said, it really strikes me that this is quite stripped back. When you read through, it's not complicated. It's quite stripped back. And it just occurred to me in that moment that this is an apostle towards the end of his life who's witnessed all the things that we've talked about, had this relationship with Jesus, and was writing to a church that was past its honeymoon period, had gone through periods of persecution, now was facing a challenge from within in terms of false teaching. And this apostle sits down, and with all of that wealth of experience and knowledge, an anointing, he says, okay, what's really, really important for you to hear? What's fundamental for God's people to hear? What have I learned? If I could distill it down, what do you really need? And that's what he wrote. And that's why I'd like to pick out three key themes here in John's letters. The first one is the theme of life. The second one is the theme of light. And the third one is the theme of love. So we're going to take a quick five-minute leg stretch. Please do get up from your seat. Please don't get involved in any detailed conversations because I'm only going to interrupt them in five minutes' time. It is very much a quick breather. Stretch your limbs so that we're ready for the next part. Thanks, folks. Praise God. Wow, that was good. That was like someone turned the volume down. You guys got it on volume. You got everybody on volume right now. Fantastic. Okay, let's crack on. So if you just turn with me to 1 John 1, we're just going to read the first few verses. We're going to start with life. We've been singing about life this morning. So 1 John 1 and verse 1. He starts out and he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes... and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Praise God. What a fantastic start. (laughs) If anyone had to put their credentials down, (laughs) this would be a way to do it, to say (laughs) that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And he says the life was made manifest. He's talking about Jesus. The life of God was made manifest. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega of all things. Jesus, the author of life. Jesus, the source of all life. All things are made from him. He's the originating pattern or image that the Father used to make all things in creation were made through the Son, Paul tells the Colossians. He was the catalyst of creation, and he continues to be the cohesive force that holds all things together. Steph said it this morning, he's sustaining us. Jesus is sustaining us. He is the thing in the whole of the cosmos that's holding all matter together. At the tiniest molecular level, Jesus is holding it all together. It's not gravity, folks. It's Jesus. He's holding it all together. This life, John says, came to us and was made manifest in our presence. And not only that, but we could touch him. Excuse me, Rich. We could touch that this life. The author of life came and became a person and we could handle him. We could look at him. We could speak with him. He could breathe upon us. What a fantastic yeah, yeah. thing that has happened, John is saying. Yeah. The word that John uses is a Greek word, which is zoe. And it's one of three words that the Greeks used for life. There was zoe, Suke," and the third one was bios. And bios referred to natural life of the physical body. Suke refers to psychological life It's where we get the word psychology from, and bios is the root of biology. Suke was psychological life of the human soul and mind. but Zoe refers to the uncreated, eternal life of God, the divine life which is uniquely, uniquely possessed by God. Wow. Yeah. So what happened to mankind? When Jesus came, was that that zoe, that spiritual life, came and for the first time became a person and was manifest in their midst. Jesus brought the spiritual, uncreated life of God to them. Now you say, okay, why was that so extraordinary? Because mankind, ever since the fall, has been cut off from that uncreated life of God, that zoe life. In the garden, when we, in, if I can put it this way, in the loins of Adam and Eve, took that decision to turn away from God and say, do you know what? We don't need you. We're not going to be dependent upon you, but we're going to choose to do things on our own. That that cut off that union of zoe life, and all that man was left with was the bios, was the natural life. And the problem with bios and natural life is that its tendency is to decay over time. It cannot sustain itself. It needs an outward injection to be able to be renewed. Its tendency is to run down. And over time, its tendency is to decay and to corrupt. And that is all that the world was left with until Jesus came and said, I brought the Zoe life Back to the world, it's in me, and this is the amazing thing that John is telling them. Mankind was cut off from Zoe, but Jesus came to bring Zoe back to us. A few different writers, including C.S. Lewis, have put it that way the Son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God, and that's exactly what happened. Another analogy that C.S. Lewis had was to talk about bios and zoe, what's the difference? Well, if someone purely has bios life, purely natural life, and has no zoe life, then although they are made in the image of God, it's like comparing a statue of a person with the real thing. The difference is the statue is a copy, it's a representation, it's a resemblance, but it's not the real thing. Zoe is the real thing. So here's the amazing thing, folks. When you had purely bios, and then the Spirit of God came and brought Zoe into your body and into your mind and into your heart, you became the real thing. You had the life of God in you. The uncreated, eternal life of God that created all things, that can sustain all things and does that, came into you. And the difference which the Bible talks about going from darkness into light, is like going from being a statue made in the image of God to being a son of God, full of the Zoe life of God. And John wanted to remind them as this. If you just flip across to chapter 5, he says this. This is in chapter 5 and verse 12, so quite near the end of the letter. Uh, Go to verse 11 of chapter 5. He says this, and this is the testimony that God gave us us that are witnesses. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, has Zoe. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That might seem harsh, but that is the reality of the world that we live in. And praise God, my heart is that we would understand the magnitude yeah. of being filled yeah. of the Zoe life of God, yeah. the uncreated eternal life that can be renewing you day by day. Amen. And not only that, but you have become a witness to that life, just like John was. Yeah. We are witnesses to it, so that when someone meets us, it's like they're meeting Jesus. Yeah. Because that same life that was in him is in you. That's right. Yeah. That uncreated life, they're meeting it. All that they have is bios. And they come and meet you and and say, this is different. There is something different about you. Now, our ability to be witnesses for him stems from the extent to which we allow that Zoe life to exude from us. You see, it can be contained. We can live our daily lives purely from bios, from natural things. We can sustain ourselves from natural things. Or we can choose to sustain ourselves from the life of the Spirit. The more you live in step with and full of the Holy Spirit, the more you will exude Zoe life. And the more you will transform the environment around you. And that's what John wanted us to know. That the life has come to you, and you need to exude it to those around you. And that is the only way that we can be witnesses for him in the gospel that we carry. The second thing is light. So if you just go back to the first chapter in verse 5, he says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John says, the life came, was made manifest, and this is the message he brought us. God is light. Yes. There is no darkness in him at all. Yeah. Now we have to ask ourselves a question, why was this so important? Why was the message that Jesus brought that God is light? I like the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases this. J.B. Phillips, David quoted from last week, I believe, didn't he, at Momentum. Fantastic scholar who paraphrased the New Testament, if you can get hold of his paraphrases, they are brilliant. They were written in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they are still fantastic. And he says this, and there's a very subtle difference between this and what we've just read, because no shadow of darkness can exist in him. It's not just that darkness is not in him at all, but that no darkness can exist in him. And that's what the world needed to know, because the world had looked at God and said, hey, can't you just turn a blind eye to some of this sin? Can't we just let bygones be bygones? But Jesus said, no. If you think that, you don't understand what I am. No darkness can exist in me. And therefore, you need to come into my light, and I need to remove the darkness that's in you. We will not bless anyone if we have a gospel that turns a blind eye to sin. It's a message of hope. But it's also a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a prescription for the problem of sin. And we need to be unashamed in that. This world is full of darkness. And Jesus came to a world in darkness and said, God is light. Whatever you see around you that's a problem, it's a problem of darkness. But I've come to bring my light. There's two aspects that God's light speaks of. The first one is holiness. God is pure and holy and cannot have sin, as we've just said. That means he's immutable. He's unchangeable. He doesn't change. If God changed from day to day, if he was pleased with you on Monday, he might be really angry with you on Tuesday. And if you've not lived a good life, how's he going to feel about you on Wednesday? But God isn't like that. God is always the same. And that's why he can sustain the universe. If we had a fickle God whose mood determined his judgments, the universe would collapse in on itself because it needs constancy. It needs a standard. It needs something upon which it can be built. And that is God's very nature. And God's light speaks of that. He is pure. He's never solid. If he was, we'd all be in trouble. But he isn't. And that was the message that John had brought. That's the message he received. And the other thing that it speaks of is God's truth. You see, light is diffusive naturally. And God's nature is to be diffusive, to emanate his nature. It's very Part of his very nature is to emanate who he is. And that means that his nature sheds light on the true state of things in the world. If you're in a dark room and you're bumping into things and someone comes and switches a light on, they've done you a big favor, haven't they? And that's what Jesus was saying. I've come to switch the light on, folks, because this world is in the dark and every plan that's formulated to fix things is not seeing what's in the room. It's just fumbling around, trying to find a solution and not bump into stuff. And that's Jesus, why he came. And the two aspects of the world that God's light tells us as well. The num- number one thing is that sin is toxic. Yeah. It's the thing we have to understand as believers about sin. Sin isn't, um, you know, when you talk about a white lie, there's always harmless forms of sin, isn't there, in the, in the world's eyes? But all sin is toxic. If you have a substance that's toxic, you can't have a single drop of it and say, well, there's only a little drop of it. If it's toxic, it's toxic. And that's what sin is like. Whether it's little sins or big sins, it has a toxicity that will spread and fill everything. And God knows that, and his light exposes that. God has called us into a fellowship of the light. I've heard of the fellowship of the ring. (laughs) This is a fellowship of the light. Folks, we are called into a fellowship of the light. Yeah. That God will open our eyes to this true state of things in the world. That God will open our eyes to see what is happening in the spiritual realms, not only in our life, but in the lives of everybody around us. Everybody that you love. Everybody that you work with. Everybody in your family. That in that light, <laughs> God's light shines and you start to see the true state of things. Yeah. It also means that we need to walk in the light. And John stresses this repeatedly because the problem of Gnosticism was that because there was a separation of the physical and the spiritual, some Gnostics would say, well, the body's evil anyway, so it doesn't really matter what you do with it as long as your spirit is pure. But that's not true. The Bible teaches us that the spirit and the body are intermingled. What happens in one affects the other. And Jesus came to redeem our minds, our souls, our spirits, and our bodies, So it does matter what we do. And John was saying, if you claim to walk in the light, you can't then live a life that doesn't reflect your walking in the light. If we're to be effective witnesses in this world, we need to be those who are walking daily in the light. We need to be those whose life show that we are obedient to Jesus. Now, I think it can be quite difficult sometimes to hear Jesus' command to us to say, if you love me, you'll obey me. Now, who hasn't read that and said, well, I've disobeyed you lots, Lord. I've disobeyed you this morning. Does that mean I don't love you? And it's hard to hear that. And Jesus isn't saying you'll never sin again. But he's saying that there should be the fruit of love in our lives. And this brings us on to the third thing, which is John's theme of love. This is where everything is heading. You see, folks, we cannot walk in the light, we cannot live lives of obedience to Jesus unless we do so out of God's love. He is life. He brought the light. But in some ways, this is just my own view, most importantly of all, he brought God's love, without which none of the rest would really matter because we would be stuck in our sins. We cannot obey God him and live a faithful life walking in the light out of sheer force of willpower. Or by surrounding ourselves with the apparatus of religion, of a system that keeps us like tramlines on the straight and narrow. That's how what we believe differs from most other faiths and belief systems in the world because obedience to Christ doesn't come out of sheer force of will it comes out of our love for him and John says a couple of times in his letters to know him is to love him and to love him is to know him as you come to know him more you cannot help but fall in love with him and if you love him you do the things that he said it takes time it takes a lifetime but it's a process so we have to ask ourselves, what is it about God's love that is different from the love in the world? It's perfectly reasonable to say, okay, well, God's love has come into us, but how does that differ from love that I see out there? There is parental love, there's familial love, there is love between friends, there is self-sacrificial love out in the world amongst people who have only have bias and do not have God's zoe. Love, uh, so a life within them. I was thinking about this recently and thinking, well, is God's love just more of our love? In other words, is it that we just love a certain amount, but because God's bigger than the rest of us, he just loves more, and that's the comparison? And the answer is no. It's different. It's different at the point of quality. And I just want to turn you to chapter 4. And John says something here, and, and if we're not careful, we can sort of speed on past it. But actually, I think there's something significant in this for us. He says two things. The first thing, um, this is headed up in my Bible, God is love. The first thing is in verse 8. Okay, let's go back to verse 7. You push me into it. <laughs> Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So let's just stop there. So the first thing is, what is different about God's love? God is love. He's not, if I can put it this way, the light that you see that comes to you is something that's emanated from, but the source, that's what God is. He's the source of all love. Any other love is an, echo or an imitation of what real love is because he is love in other words whatever God does that's what love is that's how you define love God's actions are love and Paul gives us a list in 1 Corinthians about how that what that looks like in everyday life what it means when it comes into contact with our life so he's the source of all love but there's more let's read on verse 9 it says in this the love of God was made manifest amongst us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that's an atonement, a sacrifice, for our sins. He says something really significant here, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. What is John saying? Love is not evidenced by our response to God. It's evidenced in what he initiated in the first place. Why is that so? We have to go back to the nature of God, the fact that sin is toxic to him, that he is holy. So for him to embrace us, we don't understand yet the magnitude of what he was doing. His love overcame his aversion to sin. If I can put it that way. It overcame something that was abhorrent to him and enabled him to embrace it. Jesus came not only and embraced it, but took humanity into himself and made us pure. And that is how his love is different from any other love that we have known. Let me try to give you an example to help us, just help us try to imagine, because this is really difficult. This is at the edges of our revelation, I guess. If you can imagine that someone was killing everybody that you cared about, everybody in your family was killing them, and at that very moment, you were able to love them more than you've loved anything else in this world. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the worst people in all of history? Can you imagine loving them unequivocally? Not being put off by the ugliness of the atrocities that they're committing and loving them. We can't, can we? But that's what he did. Not only in embracing us, but allowing mankind to crucify his son. And when it was all happening, his love never waned for a single second. We cannot imagine that. Because we haven't got room in our hearts for the two sets of feelings. But God is bigger than all that. And his love is able to overcome. That's what the Father did. But that same love is what he brought to us. When he came He brought the life of God. He brought us into the light of God, but he filled us with the love of God. And folks, John and the rest of the New Testament writers repeatedly say to us, love one another, but they always bring a qualification. Just as in Christ, God loved you. Now that sentence immediately tells us he's not talking about our love He's talking about that love I've just described, the love that would embrace the worst of humanity and love it and see through all of the toxic sin and ugliness and evil. The command to us is to love one another, but with that love. Thank God. (laughs) Because we haven't got the capacity to do it. We have love that does this, even for the people we like. Never mind about the ones we don't like. Yeah? But the love of God is something else. The love of God will enable you to embrace the worst of the worst. And here's the irony, is that the more God fills you with his love, actually the more acutely you feel the toxicity of sin. Because the more you know him, the more you walk in step with him, the more holy and purified you become in your character so that sin becomes more and more ugly in your own life and yes in the lives of others but at the same time the love of God enables you to embrace that which is becoming even more clear to you in its ugliness and toxicity it's not a paradox it's not a mystery it's a reality in our lives And I want all of us to be filled more and more and more with the love of God. That is the only way that we can be God's witnesses because there will be no limit to those we can reach and those we can embrace who are naturally offensive as we become more like him. You know, in John's Gospel, he records this statement that Jesus made about himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe in this statement of Jesus, the three elements that we've talked about today are here. The way is love. The truth is the light of God. He brings the truth. And the life is that Zoe life that God has brought to us that is unimaginably magnificent and glorious and is residing right now within you. We can carry his love into a dying world when our lives emanate with the reflected glory of God, just like Moses' face when he came down the mountain. And that's the point at which we're able to introduce others to this life that we have that will be different from anything they've ever known. We are God's witnesses in this world, and John has reminded us in these wonderful letters of what really matters. God's life, his light that we walk in, the fellowship we have, and the love of God, which is like nothing else in this world. Lord, I just want to thank you for making us all that we are. For Lord John also said that as he is, so we are in this world. And my prayer is that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see what you've done in us, the life you've brought, and to fill us with your love. Lord, make us effective and powerful witnesses so that when people meet us, they know they are meeting you. And Lord, they are desperate to meet you for themselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, folks. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.